couple of weeks ago, something very unusual happened. A Christian was headline news in the media. Even more unusual, this Christian came from Scotland and from a Baptist church. Most unusual of all, it was good news about a Christian, not bad news. I guess most of you, especially the younger generation, know who I'm talking about, although some may not admit to it. In the words of the BBC, and I quote from memory, Cameron Stout, a 32-year-old religious fish trader from Orkney, has won this year's Big Brother reality TV show. Now, I must confess in all honesty that at the beginning of the show some weeks ago, when I heard that a committed Christian, vouched for by none other than our assistant pastor who knows him, was one of the occupants of the Big Brother house, I somewhat doubted his wisdom in putting himself in such an environment and under such a spotlight. I certainly didn't think, and neither did Cameron, that he had any chance of winning if he remained true to his Christian convictions. However, I think it's fair to say from all the reports, and I only watch, of course, for research purposes, um, (laughs) despite all the temptations that were placed in front of him, he was able firmly, yet graciously, to state not only what he believed, to talk the talk, but also to practice what he preached, to walk the walk. So, for example, when Big Brother asked him how he felt about being nominated for eviction, he took out his NIV, which he carried most of the time, turned to Psalm 37, read the opening verses, and commented, dinner fret. There was genuine astonishment, even incredulity, at Cameron's Christian beliefs. As, for example, when Big Brother asked him how many dates would elapse before a boy had sex with his girlfriend and Cameron uncompromisingly said he did not believe in sex before marriage. And what the show revealed, especially to those of us who were screened by the Christian subculture in which we often live and operate, is the enormous gulf between the worldview, the beliefs and practices of our society and the teaching of Jesus and the New Testament. And it is a gulf that is getting wider all the time. Yet, we should not despair. For if you know your history, you will know that that gulf has been as wide, if not wider, in the past. And despite that, in that environment, Christians have been able to maintain their integrity and to challenge their society. And the result has been that the Church of Jesus Christ has begun to grow as others were attracted to Christ by the radical lifestyle of Christians. No one has been able to work out how a guy like him, Cameron, was able to get all the votes, given his Christian convictions. And when that happens, then the gap begins to narrow. So how do Christians do it? It's a very important question if you claim to be a Christian. How are we in this church going to engage with our society and its beliefs in a way in which we are heard and society is challenged? Well, the New Testament, of course, has the answers. There's nothing new under the sun. And that's what we've been studying, really, under our series, Keeping First Things First. 
And today's subject we've called Faith in the Marketplace. And you'll find the reading that we're going to focus on in 1 Corinthians, the book we've been looking at, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It will help to have a Bible. If you don't normally come here, it's helpful to have a Bible. If you come here regularly, I want to encourage you to bring your Bible. The Bibles in the pews are for guests and those who haven't got one, and also for those who forgot theirs this evening. So, if you haven't got a Bible, pick one up. If you can't see one, just reach over and pass uh, them to people who don't have them. It's page 1151. In our last study last week, we were looking, if you look at chapter 10, the heading is Warnings from Israel's History. And we looked at those warnings against complacency, about idolatry, and about being despondent because we think we can't resist temptation. And verse 13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful, he'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you attempt it, he'll also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. Now we come to verse 14 in our passage for today. Therefore, says Paul, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean, then, that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of something I thank God for. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is God's Word. It's quite a difficult passage to understand and to relate to where we're at in our culture, some of the things that are mentioned. So let's just pray a moment and ask God to help us to concentrate. I know it's hard to hope all the windows are open, and let's just focus on this together. Let's pray again. Lord, as we come to these words written almost, well, over two millennia ago, we are aware of the cultural gap that exists between what is written here and how we live in Edinburgh in the 21st century. Lord, we need your help, therefore, to understand, first of all, what is being said, uh, but more crucially, to apply it to our own situations. 
in a way that challenges us and helps us to engage with our society without compromising what we believe. And so, Lord, help me to explain it clearly as I should and help us to understand it. And most important, help me and all of us here to put it into practice. For we ask it in Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen. Many years ago, a young woman who had recently become a Christian said something to me that I've never forgotten. She said this, Now I've become a Christian, I'm having to reevaluate everything I believe and everything I do. Now I've become a Christian, I've got to rethink all the things I do and all the things I believe. Now this is true for anyone who becomes a Christian, but it's especially true if you become a Christian, not from a church background, but from a totally non-church background where your beliefs and lifestyle have little, at least, direct Christian content. And this is what had happened to these Christians in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a Greek city, famous city. It prided itself, like all Greek cities, on its learning and philosophy. I'm sure all of you know about the great Greek philosophers. The city was full of temples, to a whole variety of religions, And the whole lifestyle of Corinth was one of pleasure, seeking pleasure, and people weren't too bothered about their morals and how they behaved. So if you became a Christian from that background, you needed to know, what are the things in my life now that need to change? What is incompatible with my new life as a Christian now? What are the things that I can keep doing with a, with a good conscience that are kind of neutral? And more crucially, how do you decide which is which? Now, as I say, our society is increasingly becoming alienated from its Christian foundation that it's lived by for centuries. And the same thing applies to us now. Maybe you've just become a Christian. Recently, over this year, past year maybe. And if you didn't come from a church background, I'm sure there's all sorts of things you're thinking about. And maybe Christians say to you, hang on a minute, now you're a Christian, you better stop doing that. And you say, why? And they say, well, we don't do that in our church. You need to be able to think these things through. What kind of principles do you base your decision on? And these are the kind of questions that the Christians in Corinth had. And so, what they did, they wrote this letter, we don't have a copy of it, they wrote a letter to the man who had founded their church, a man called Paul, who was a Christian preacher, an apostle or messenger of Jesus, who had visited their city several years before and had preached the good news about Jesus. And many of them had responded and become Christians and formed this church. And so they wrote to Paul and asked him about all these problems, about lifestyle and what they should and shouldn't do. Now we don't know, we don't have a copy of their letter, but this letter 1 Corinthians is a copy of Paul's answer. And if you read his answer behind it, you can work out what the questions were that he's responding to and find out what the issues were. And that's something that we've read about here. The answers to questions about Christian behaviour. And what I simply want you to notice in this section that we read together, if you look at it in front of you here now, in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, right through to 11, 1, the chapter headings are a bit confusing. They were put in later, of course, and they got it in the wrong places. So don't worry about that. Verse 1 really belongs with this section. But Paul is basically saying in this section, there are two kinds of issues. 
there are some kinds of issues that are totally incompatible with your Christian lifestyle and there's no way you can continue to do these things. But there are some things that are neither here nor there. And you need to decide what to do in those circumstances on a different basis, not on a matter of conscience, but there are other factors involved in it. Now, now this is still true today. There are some things, like, let me give you a, a simple example. I was thinking in the vestry, what could I say that would be absolutely irrelevant? Uh, so here goes. If I said as a pastor, look, I'm the pastor of Charlotte Chapel, and I think we're all getting a bit bored with the Bible because we study every week, so my proposal is we just forget about the Bible, and why don't we just meet together and talk about you know, how things are going and share a few of our experiences. That is totally incompatible with the Christian faith. However, what about wearing a tie in church? Is that biblical? Do the preachers in Charlotte Chapel have to wear ties? Our assistant pastor wore one this morning when he's preaching. He's now got no tie on. I think he thinks he's free now. (laughs) Well, it's just a tradition, isn't it? And in fact, when I worked abroad in a hot climate, it was a pretty crazy tradition to wear a tie in the middle of the jungle somewhere. And in fact, thinking about it this evening... (laughs) If nobody minds, I think I'm going to take this tie off because it's... Uh, and I'll put the microphone back on for the microphone, boys, so that we're getting upset here. And I also read in the newspaper this week that wearing a tie can affect your eyesight as well, and it's very bad for you, so... I'm not planning to do this every week. The, the, the older generation may say, well, a pastor ought to wear a tie. And I, I fully respect that. But if you don't mind this evening, I might do better without one. But can you see the point I'm making? Ties are neither here nor there, but there are other factors involved. I've been in church settings where everybody wears ties and I wouldn't want to offend them unnecessarily if I took the tie off. Some of you may be upset, I'm sorry if you are, but, and you may say, as soon as that person comes in the pulpit without a tie on, people switch off and say, I'm not going to listen to that because he's not wearing a tie. Now in those cases, I'd be sensible to wear a tie, alright? There are other factors involved. You get the point I'm making? There are some things that are, are wrong and there are other things that are neither here nor there. And how do you decide which are which and how do you decide on the issues that are neither here nor there, what you're going to do. Well, those are the kind of issues you want to talk about as we look at this passage together. Okay. Uh, Paul deals with these two different scenarios. There are some situations where he says you, you need to run, basically. Flee from. And there are other issues where, you know, neither here nor there. Don't ask any questions. It's not a matter of conscience at all. Uh, so let's look at them. Although the issues were different, the principles are pretty much the same. First of all, then, when to run. All right, verses 14 to 22. One of, the, one of the big issues for the Christians in Corinth, try and put yourself back in this situation, because it's very different to us. Corinth was full of temples. And one of the big issues that the Christians in Corinth were wrestling with, and if you've been here over these past weeks, Paul began this discussion in chapter 8, and it was some time ago when we began it, but let me review for those who weren't here. Um, the Christians in Corinth wanted to know whether it was okay to go to meals that were held in temples. They had these meals held in temples. Now, this is not as simple as it might seem to us, because the temples and the meals were very different from what we think of. Temples were not just places of worship, but they acted as a sort of first century equivalent of a social club, of a business place where business was transacted, social club where you met your friends, and even as kind of restaurants. It's the kind of place you went when you had a meal with your friends. However, when you had this meal, 
in the temple, the meat that was offered and served to you was meat that had already been offered to the God who was worshipped in that temple. They had all these different gods. And what happened was, the, you, if you were a worshipper, supposing you said to your friends, right, uh, we'll meet in the temple of Apollo down in the marketplace. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow evening. You're welcome to come to this feast. You sent an invitation out. Alright, if you were responsible, you might take an animal along and say to the priest, right, I'm having my friends around tomorrow evening. I'm bringing this animal. Here's this goat or lamb. I want you to sacrifice it for me. And the priest would sacrifice the lamb. Some of it would be offered to the God and burnt upon the altar. Some of it the priest would keep as his commission. And the rest would be served to you in the restaurant, in the temple. They had a special dining area set aside for it. Now, the Christians in Corinth wanted to know, is it okay to go to these kind of meals now with Christians? Some of the Christians in Corinth said, of course it is. There's no problem with that whatsoever. You're free in Christ. Everything is permissible. Do what you like. Anyway, they said, we know now we're Christians that these idols that they worship in the temple, they're not real gods at all. There's only one God, the great God, whom we worship and his son Jesus Christ. And in any case, if you're a Christian, you've been baptized, haven't you? You've been baptized, yes. You're protected by Christ. And you meet week by week with other Christians to break bread and drink the wine, representing the body and blood of Jesus, you're protected by that, so just go along, do what you like. Now what Paul says here, is you're wrong. He says, you need to run away to flee from going to places like that. Now why does he say that? He says, while no Christian can avoid temptation, verse 13, no temptation has happened to you that's not come to people, you don't go looking for problems. And if you go to a meal like this, which was tied up with pagan worship, which inevitably ends up with people drinking too much, and sexual immorality, and cult prostitution was also part of this whole package, if you're a Christian, you'd be stupid to put yourself in that situation. He says, look what he says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Doesn't that make sense? It's senseless to put yourself in that situation. So he says, flee from idolatry. These are the kind of situations you need to avoid as a Christian. Why should you avoid them? Well, he mentions at least three reasons why you should avoid these kind of things. The first issue is that of divided allegiance. He says, how can a person who claims to worship Jesus as Lord also join in a worship service to some other idol who claims to be a god? How can a person who drinks from the cup representing the blood of Jesus sacrificed on his or her behalf also drink to the honour of some other god? And how can a Christian share bread with other Christians as a sign that they belong to the same community, also share in a meal with people who don't have the same allegiance, but worship another God. It means divided allegiance. Jesus himself said on one occasion, you can't serve God and money. And Paul is saying, you cannot worship Jesus and idols. Moreover, he says, if you do this, it places you in enormous spiritual danger. He says, yes, you're right, the idols worshipped in these temples are not real gods at all. But, make no mistake, 
these idols are used by demonic entities, by demonic powers, as a front to entice people and to entrap them and to enslave them, to gain a foothold in the lives of the worshippers, even though they may not be aware of that fact. There is a battle going on out there and these spiritual forces are at work behind the scenes and if you get engaged in that kind of worship, they will catch you up and ensnare you. You are exposing yourself to demonic influence. And thirdly, perhaps most, well certainly most important of all, he says, you claim to worship God alone and you need to be faithful to him. And if you are not faithful to God, if you try to worship other gods as well, you will provoke the Lord to jealousy. Now when you say the word jealousy, most of us think it's a negative emotion. But in actual fact, it's a neutral term depending on who's jealous. We're usually jealous for the wrong reasons. But God's jealousy or zealousness, it's the same word, is his unswerving commitment to you and to what is right. And so when you're unfaithful to him, you provoke the Lord to jealousy. You arouse his response. Be thankful. If you didn't belong to him, he wouldn't bother. You wouldn't bother about someone being unfaithful to someone you weren't married to. Well, you may do, but if you were married to them, you'd certainly be concerned. It's a sign of your care and concern. And he says, you're not stronger than God. You can't get away with this. You cannot win this battle. Now, that's the background. And you're sitting there saying, what on earth has this got to do with us? I'm not likely to go to some temple down the road somewhere else. Before we dismiss it, let me talk to you about some issues that you may want to think about in this regard. First of all, there are many places in the world where this is of direct relevance to Christians. If you were here a few weeks ago, one of our missionaries, Derek Newton, has written a PhD thesis. It took him years to write, based on these chapters, in relation to the church in Indonesia. And there are many parts of the world where this issue of meat offered to idols, participating in this kind of worship, is a live issue. Closer to home, there is an increased interest in the West in ancient religions and practices in which people place themselves in positions of spiritual danger, dabbling in occult activities, seances, Ouija boards, all that kind of thing. And on one level, people think it's a kind of joke, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know, and Charmed, and all these programs that have been spawned recently. Did you know that since that program, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, has been shown, the number of inquiries to the British Witches Federation has increased astronomically? Because people are interested to say, maybe there's something in this after all. And those of us who have been involved in pastoral ministry and in any kind of Christian ministry know that it is possible for people to get caught up in things that they're totally unaware of. Are demons to be dismissed as just a product of unsophisticated first century thinking? Or are they, as many people in the non-Western world and those of us who've lived in those situations know, real powers, real forces, realities to be feared? And before we dismiss the danger of temples, going to temples dedicated to the worship of idols like those in Corinth, maybe we should think a little more deeply about some of the places that people go to today and the philosophy that lies behind them. Are there modern equivalents in our society to the temples in Corinth? What lifestyle or philosophy lies behind the club culture of Edinburgh and every big city today? Is, for example, Eros 
just a name chosen at random? Or does it represent, to some extent, what the god Eros once represented to the Greeks and the ancient world, that is, the pursuit of erotic pleasure, sexual fulfillment, and hedonism? And those words will belong to more sophisticated clubs. What is the ethos behind them? Is it the worship of the god Mammon and materialism? And while the attraction of some of these things is understandable for people who aren't Christians, if we are Christians, we need to think seriously about these issues. Now I know they're complex issues. I know Christians, we'll come to it in a moment, need to have a presence where they can engage with people and relate to them. But we need to be very careful. And my, my own advice, for what it's worth, and you may disagree with me, and you're at liberty to do so, you need to examine your own heart and conscience on this one, particularly those of the younger generation who are saying, what's that fuddy diddy talking about club culture for? But... Um, my own advice is, if in doubt, stay out. Not least for your own spiritual health. This is not a game, it is a war. The Apostle Paul said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 6:12. So we need to examine which of these issues comes into the category of run. And when they do, just do that. Run. However, this does not apply in every situation, otherwise we'd do nothing, would we? I mean, we'd be sitting in Charlotte Chapel all day from dawn till dusk, or in some kind of Christian culture. So the Apostle Paul then turns to two related issues, and in both these cases he says, don't worry about these, don't ask questions. And that's in verses 23 to 33. The first situation he talks about, again, relates to what happened in Corinth. He talks about, what about meat that's on sale in the meat market? We know there was a meat market in Corinth. I've actually discovered an excavation with the word meat market written on a piece of plaster somewhere, and it's down in the Agora, the marketplace in, in Corinth. They had their meat market. What was the problem with this? Well, I told you about those priests. You know the ones who got their own commission? Got some of the meat that was offered? Well, you imagine hundreds of worshippers all coming in, giving you their meat, and you're getting your, your commission. There's no way you could eat it without becoming extremely fat. So what did the priests do? Well, they acted as kind of first century butchers. They used a bit of meat for their families, but all the rest they sold onto the butchers in the marketplace. So you, when you went down to Sainsbury's, or whatever the equivalent was, or the butcher's shop, and you bought your meat, chances are it may well have been offered to an idol, sold on by the priest, and you were buying it in the marketplace. Now, says Paul, what do you do in that case? You say to the person, uh, excuse me, can you tell me exactly where this meat came from? Paul says, no, nah, just don't bother about it. Don't ask questions. It doesn't matter. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 24, verse 1. It all comes from God. It doesn't really matter at all. But suppose, he says, you're invited for a meal by a friend who's not a Christian in Corinth. And you go along and he brings out the roast lamb or whatever it is. I was going to say pork, but it probably wasn't pork. But <laughs> and he brings out the meat. What do you do then? Meat served by a non-Christian host. Paul says again, don't ask questions. Don't say, uh, I'd like to eat this meat with you, but can you tell me where you got it from? He says, no, just eat it. You shouldn't have any conscience about this. Meat is meat, so go and eat. Unless, he says, there's someone present for whom it's a big issue. And if there's someone there for whom it's a big issue, and who raises the matter, what then? What do you do then? Supposing someone says, you're just about to, you know, dig into this lovely piece of meat, and somebody says, oh, just a minute, did you know that that came from uh, the temple? 
What do you do then? Well, the Corinthians, again, this wonderful slogan they had, they said, everything is permissible. Well, just do it. There's nothing wrong with it. And Paul says, yeah, that's right. There is nothing wrong with this particular issue. Everything is permissible. But he says, not everything is beneficial. Not everything is constructive. Although it may be okay for me to do it, it may not be the best choice for other people who are affected or influenced by what I do. And he says, when you've got a choice that's neither here nor there, think carefully about other people and how your choice affects them. Particularly, especially, people who are not Christians. It should be for the good of others. Verse 24, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. So if you're a Christian, you may choose to forego your legitimate rights, such as eating anything set before you, rather than giving unnecessary offence to a non-Christian who is present. Paul says, it's not my conscience. I've got, I've got a clear conscience. But if it hurts someone else, if it turns them away from hearing the message about Christ, then be very careful what you do. Always ask in these choices, how is this going to affect somebody who's watching who isn't a Christian? Notice the conclusion then, we're almost through with him to the conclusion. Notice what he says in conclusion then. So, verse 31, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, to trip up, whether Jew, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of others, so they may be saved. The most important factor of all is can you do this for the glory of God? Does what I do honour God? But this is applied in a specific way in these verses. What is it that most dishonours God and fails to bring him glory? Well, it's the fact that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as Paul himself wrote in Romans 3.23. The way that we live fails to bring glory to God. And that's why Jesus came into the world to bring us back to God, so that we might live lives that glorify God. So, what is it that will most glorify God? It is that people might be saved and bring glory to God. The way you can honour God most is to live a life that is pleasing to Him in such a way that it attracts other people to Jesus Christ and that your goal is that other people might be saved. So they might be saved. So in a society like ours, where people stand on their rights, where we put what me, suits me first, Christians are called to be different, to put the welfare of others first, and most of all, their ultimate welfare, their spiritual destiny. Will my behaviour, my choice on these issues, where I'm free to do something, would I be better not doing it, rather than cause someone to stumble and be offended? Would I be better always doing what will help them to understand who Jesus is, why he came, so they might be drawn to Christ? Final conclusion from verse 1. One of the most telling moments, back to Big Brother, was when Cameron expressed concern about his attitude towards one of the girls in the house called Lisa, who I think got on everybody's nerves apparently, and he reflected on the way he'd responded and he'd got this sweatband on which has now become a sort of a 
designer feature of everybody watching the show, one of those sweatbands that said WWJD, what would Jesus do? And his reflection was, he said, I'm really concerned because I think the way I responded to this girl was not a Christ-like way. And I feel bad about that and I should have dealt with it differently. He asked, what would Jesus do? And that, in a sense, should be our concern. Because notice how Paul finishes this section. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. You see, our role model in this is Jesus. What did he do? He laid aside his legitimate rights in order to save us coming into our world, taking our place on the cross, dying the death we deserve, bearing the wrath of God that was our due. He did all that in order to save us. So, if we are followers of Jesus, we should be people who are prepared to do the same thing. To lay aside our rights for the benefit of other people. Very few of us, I suspect, would be prepared to put ourselves into the spotlight in something like Big Brother. I certainly wouldn't want to be in it. Yet, each one of us who has declared and made it known, and I hope you have in it, in a, in a natural way, if you're, if you're at work or at school in your recreation, if people know that you are a Christian, you are under the spotlight, and people look at your lifestyle, they look at the choices you make, and they're either turned more towards Christ or you cause them to stumble. Now it is a cop-out to say, well, well, they shouldn't follow my example, they should follow Christ. How many of us are prepared with Paul to say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ? And only when we do that, however poorly, and like Cameron, admit that we've got it wrong sometimes, only then are others likely to be saved. You see, the greatest achievement in life is not to win Big Brother or a million pounds or whatever it is. The greatest achievement in your life is to have an influence on others that leads them to Christ so that others might be saved. So make that your goal. Follow Christ. And others maybe will be turned will turn to him and follow him also. We're going to respond to that in prayer in a moment, but before that, let's say...